0: Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this. "...even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him, now you believe in Him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy." because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus, you are Lord and King of our lives. Today, on this Easter morning, we renew our shared confession that you are our King of kings and Lord of lords. We are not our own kings and queens. We humbly bow our hearts and our lives to you. For you alone beat death, overcame the grave, walked out of the tomb, and left your burial clothes behind you. You are our risen and conquering King. Thank you that you have made a way possible for us to be reconciled and joined to our Creator God in relationship. Thank you for your grace, mercy, compassion, and love. Thank you that you demonstrated your love by dying for us, the unrighteous, when we were still wandering and straying from you. You are our good shepherd who laid down your life for your friends, took it back up on the third day, and you have brought us graciously into your flock. Lift our eyes this morning and our hearts to your power and goodness. Tune our hearts to your spirit and to your voice. Turn our hearts from unbelief to belief, from doubt to trust, from uncertainty to assurance. We love you. We serve you, Jesus. May your spirit move powerfully In our midst this morning, we pray this in the name of our risen and reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible, get to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 20, looking at chapter 20 this morning. If you need a good Bible, there are some at Guest Connections. If you're with us online and you need a good Bible, I'd be happy to drop one off to you. I remember the night when my heart turned from unbelief to belief, from skeptical to trusting, from faith in myself to faith in Christ. I was in high school. I had heard about Jesus, heard the gospel shared before, and yet typically met that subject with great skepticism. Kind of like this posture of, prove it to me. Show me the evidence that Jesus existed, let alone died, let alone rose from the dead. Looking back, I can see that that underlying tone of skepticism was really masking a larger issue in my heart. That issue being unbelief. In reality, it wasn't like one more historical fact, one more logical argument, one more book from Josh McDowell was going to push me from unbelief to belief. The thing that was holding me back from trusting in Jesus fully was that I really couldn't let go of trusting in Dave fully. I thought Dave knew more. Dave was more trustworthy is what I thought. Like I I knew I had sin going on in my life. I, I knew I wasn't living the way God had called me to live and yet my solution to that was just work harder, do more, achieve more, try more, mixed in with a little bit of uh, keep the ugly in the dark hidden away in the dark and try to shine a light onto what appeared moral from the outside. By the grace of God, all of those false beliefs crumbled down one night in high school. The good news of Jesus became good news for me that morning. It became not just Good news for people out there, but it became personal. Jesus died for me, my sin, my shame, my guilt. He came to rescue me and save me from judgment. And He came to give me new life in Him. And the path for that was through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It was not by my works. Because Jesus had already done the work on the cross the third day of the resurrection, and His work was all sufficient. That evening, I repented, meaning I changed my mind about who Jesus is and turned my life toward Christ from unbelief to saving faith. And for those of you who are in Christ, you can relate. You remember that That day, that season of life where the good news became not just good news for them or for other people, it became good news to you, and you surrendered your life to Jesus. This is saving faith. Now, what has occurred countless times since then is what I'd call moments of sanctifying faith, moments of repentance where I was turning from unbelief to belief, from doubt to trust in Jesus. I was saved in high school. There is assurance for those who are in Christ because we are not held securely in His hand by our power and might, praise God, but only by His. So these moments of repenting from unbelief to belief since my conversion, it wasn't like I was getting resaved all the time. It was that my faith was being sanctified. It was growing deeper, stronger. In the moments where I was tempted to put my faith back in myself, thinking my ways or thoughts were better than His. The Lord lovingly exposed that sin in me, and I repented. I, I turned. I was reminded that His ways and thoughts and wisdom were far superior than my own, higher in every way. And so, so my faith was, was deepened in those moments. It was sanctified. Back in high school, the roots of my life were planted into Jesus and His gospel for the first time, saving faith. And then these multitude of times since then, where my faith has been formed more and more into Jesus. My prayer for us today is that the Lord would move us collectively and individually from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith, because I believe for all of us there is some level of unbelief or doubt that the Lord wants to do formative work in us this morning. For some of you, you're not a Christ follower yet, and so you're still an unbeliever meaning you have yet to place your complete faith and trust in Jesus. You're still following yourself ultimately. And I pray that today you'd move from unbelief to belief in the risen King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Others of us are believers in and followers of Jesus. And yet here's what I know. I bet there's some area of unbelief or doubt that lingers in your heart. After going through what you've gone through, the Lord you doubt that the Lord is still good. You doubt, Romans 8, that that He is still for you. After failing yet again in this area of sin, you doubt if the Lord is able to actually bring victory or transformation in your life. After seeing that prodigal child continue to walk away and wander and stray, you doubt if the Lord is able to save them. You doubt that God will be able to meet your needs if you give to Him first and generously and faithfully you doubt that God could reach that family member that you might see later today. You doubt that God hears your prayers or even cares. You doubt your marriage can experience transformation and actually go from just decent to life-giving. You doubt the power of reading and reflecting on God's word. You doubt if, if you'll find victory in this particular area of your heart. I believe there's probably some area whether large or small, of unbelief and doubt in our hearts. For those in Christ, that unbelief is not meaning we're not saved. Instead, it's like Peter, while walking on the water, took his eyes off Jesus, sinks into the water, and Jesus says to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? For the believer in Christ, doubt is not the complete absence of faith. Instead, as one author puts it, it is faith laden with weights of unbelief which threaten to sink us. We're looking at the events following the resurrection of Jesus, and today we're looking at when Thomas encounters Jesus for the first time. In the example of Thomas, we're getting some encouragement in this area of unbelief and doubt. Throughout history, Thomas has, given, has been given the unflattering title of Doubting Thomas, when in fact he's never referred to that in Scripture And yet that's the label that he has picked up over the centuries. And so the Spirit didn't inspire John to to record this event to embarrass Thomas, nor label him for the rest of eternity as the chronic doubter. It is given to us because in the example of Thomas, we can both identify with his attitude and his heart and be encouraged to turn like he does from unbelief to belief. This is the transition we will see him make in John 20. I pray we will make the same transition this morning. Starting in verse 19 in the CSB uh, translation. When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they Saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And then, verse 24 But Thomas, called Twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is hearing about this gathering that he wasn't a part of, that he missed out on, and he is not buying the news that the risen Jesus was among his disciple friends. He wasn't excited to hear this news from his friends. I will never believe, he says. And yet, as definitive as a statement as that is, we'll see Thomas make this repentant shift. One I pray that we make this morning. Whether you're an unbeliever and today is the day of your salvation, or a believer, and you are turning from from trusting in yourself to trusting in Jesus, from unbelief to belief. Thomas believes they've seen a ghost. Unless I see and touch the wounds on his body, I will not believe. And yet we know from the encounter of the two Marys that they had with Jesus that He is not a ghost. He has a real resurrected body. They they clasp his, His feet in worship. He eats real food and drinks with the disciples after His resurrection. But Thomas is saying, I don't care what you say, guys. I'm not believing you, and I never will unless I see. Now, as we read the words from Thomas... Don't lose sight of the reality that the other disciples were in the exact same boat of unbelief prior to Jesus seeing them in that locked room. This is the only time nails are mentioned in the Gospels related to the crucifixion, and they are recorded here for good reason. Imagine this from Thomas's perspective, if you can. On Friday, he witnessed Jesus on the cross. You can imagine he has images in his head that he can't get out. Images of nails, wounds, blood, open flesh, and he's hearing that Jesus is alive, and he's like, guys, do you remember what he physically looked like just a couple days ago? Do you remember what he looked like on Friday? Do you remember what the Romans did to him? Do you remember how the nails were driven in, the spear was stuck into his side, and you're telling me he's alive, and you've seen him? After what I witnessed, he could never come back to life. Thomas is thinking, has Jesus risen from the dead? Has he really beaten death? Or are my disciple friends losing it in the chaos of of Holy Week and the chaos leading up to his arrest and crucifixion? are Are my friends making things up to try to make themselves feel better? Am I really supposed to trust Peter, who was scared by the little girl in the courtyard denying Jesus? Thomas is not trusting the testimony of witnesses, including those he already knows. And he says, I don't want to just see, but I want to touch. And unless these conditions are met, I will never believe, he says. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands, reach out your hand, And put it into my side, don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So the following Sunday, one week after Easter, Jesus begins in the same way, peace be with you. And then Jesus refers to what Thomas said to his disciples or said to his disciple friends a week ago. Because Jesus is God, He knows all, sees all, nothing is hidden from Him. He perceives the heart. He knows the words that Thomas spoke to His disciples. D.A. Carson wrote this, By taking up Thomas' challenge in this way, Jesus simultaneously proves that He hears His disciples even when He is not physically present and removes all possible grounds for unbelief, even the most reasonable Thomas has to be thinking in this moment, wait, 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 Jesus, you weren't there. Were you there? How are you answering my question when you weren't there, supposedly? Was Jesus obligated to to meet this requirement of Thomas? No. He's the risen King of Kings. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He just beat death, strolled out of a tomb, He's not subject to one person's demands, including our own. So why does he respond in this way? Because Jesus is gracious. He's gentle. He's kind. He's merciful to Thomas because he loves Thomas. He wants all people, including Thomas, to trust in him. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus' interaction with Thomas shows that the the resurrected Jesus is full of love and graciousness and gentleness to his people. That didn't change. The whole conversation was indeed a rebuke, but so veiled with love, Spurgeon writes, that, that Thomas could scarcely think it so. Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, don't be faithless, but believe. That's a loving rebuke. Jesus is calling Thomas to repentance, to change. Loved ones, what area of your life is the risen Jesus speaking to you? Don't be faithless, but believe. Don't be faithless, but believe. What is that specific area that He wants to form in your heart and soul this morning? And Thomas responds with this confession, My Lord and my God a confession that reflects his faith in Jesus as his Lord and God. Thomas makes this transition from unbelief to belief. I will never believe to my Lord and my God. This is repentance. Thomas was disagreeing with the Lord, and now he's had this change of mind and heart. He's now agreeing with the Lord Jesus. He was unbelieving, now he's believing. He was faithless, now he is faith-filled. This confession is coming from a heart that has been changed and a heart that is being changed actively. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, that doesn't just refer to negative things. It also refers to these kind of moments of confessing with our mouths, Jesus Christ is Lord. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? It's not past, was. Who do you say He is today? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So saving faith is not just lip service. It's faith that begins in the heart, that leads to public confession with our mouths. It goes inward to outward. Faith in Christ transforms our our words, our works, our way of life. If it's not transforming those things, then we don't have real faith in Christ, is what the book of James would tell us. What we don't know for sure is if Thomas actually touched the wounds. Jesus doesn't allude to that he did. John doesn't record it. Instead, Jesus says in verse 29 that because of sight, Thomas has believed. And in verse 29, he also gives this promise of blessing. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So there's a promise there for those who have not seen and yet believe. This is not a rebuke at at Thomas for believing because of sight or following sight. This is a promise to those who will believe through the eyes of faith. Jesus is speaking to Thomas here. But He's also speaking to future disciples who will come after His ascension. After the Holy Spirit has been poured out. That's you and me. That blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So listen, if you're a Christ follower, you're blessed this morning, on this Easter morning. Believing without seeing is blessed. One relies upon the eyes of faith rather than relying upon our physical eyes. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. And then Hebrews 11 goes on to tell story after story of people in Scripture who live by faith and not by sight. And as God's people, we are to do the same. We are commanded throughout Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 being being an example of one, to live by faith and not by sight. And Jesus says in John 10 that we are blessed We are blessed if we live by faith and not by sight. Author John Bloom wrote, Faith, as the Bible describes it, is not blind. Unbelief is blind. Faith sees a reality beyond what eyes can see, a reality that God reveals to us which is more important, in fact, more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. What is often at the root of of the sin of doubt and unbelief is that we've chosen to walk by sight rather than by faith. We've chosen to live for this world rather than God's kingdom. That's at the core of it. When I was in high school prior to saving faith, this is where I was at a different time since then, where the Lord is seeking to sanctify and deepen my faith. Mark Buchanan wrote this, Here lies the basic flaw of all doubt. It really can never be satisfied. No evidence is ever fully, finally enough. It clamors endlessly for an answer and so drowns out any answer that might be given. It demands proof, but will doubt the proof offered. Doubt then can become an appetite gone wrong. Its craving increases the more we try to fill it. Christ's concluding words to Thomas are not so much an endorsement of mere belief as a warning that the quest for proof is not the path of blessedness. Jesus speaks again, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The path of blessing is not by sight, but by faith alone. And he, is, and he enables us to walk by faith through His Holy Spirit, through His living and active Word that illuminates our path. So faith in Christ is not, well, God, if You show up, then I'll believe You. That's looking for a sign or a wonder to prove it to you. But then when that sign or wonder doesn't happen the next time, you're going to be prone to unbelief. In those moments, your belief is is being anchored to the shifty sands of circumstances and sight, what you can physically see, rather than through faith in an ever-faithful Savior who demonstrated such faithfulness through His awe-inspiring resurrection. We are commanded To walk by faith, and we can walk by faith with great assurance and security because Jesus himself, on the third day, walked out of the tomb, left his clothes behind him. His burial clothes back behind him, walked out of the tomb. We can live by faith because our faith is in him. You and I have never walked out of a tomb. Our faith is in him so we can live with assurance and peace as a result. John's desire in writing this gospel account is so that people would believe in Jesus, confess Him in the same way that Thomas did. We know that's John's desire by what he writes later in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for us, that we believe in Jesus, the risen Son of God, and know that by believing in his name, that's where we receive and are met and experience life. Jesus calls Thomas to repent here. He doesn't say, oh, it's no big deal. He doesn't ignore it. He deals with it head on and says, this must change in your life, Thomas. Why? Because Jesus is trustworthy. He's worthy of our utter devotion and faith. When we doubt, we are distrusting the Lord. We are forgetting who He is. When we've allowed circumstances and situations to begin to cloud our view of who our God is, or we've lifted up these, these things in our lives, these earthly things as idols, seeing them as more important than our all powerful, all knowing, nothing impossible God that we worship and serve. If the worship team could come back up. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, following Hebrews 11, calling us to live by faith, not by sight. Therefore, since we have such a a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Loved ones, doubt and unbelief are a hindrance that needs to be laid aside this morning. Not just once and for all, but once and then continually laid aside. What is a doubt or unbelief that needs to be laid aside in your life today? What needs to be repented of so that you and I might run the race with endurance and joy? What circumstance or excuse or situation do you have your eyes fixed on rather than Jesus who is the source of our faith? The one who joyfully laid down his life, powerfully took it back up on the third day and is now seated at the right hand at the throne of God. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our Redeemer our rescuer, our savior. Jesus, we are grateful that you laid down your life and then you took it back up. You have the authority to do both. We are grateful for the reminder that Easter is to our souls and our hearts that we worship a risen King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that you have brought us into your kingdom as your people. I pray for those here or watching online who don't trust in you yet. I pray that they would trust in you. That you would move them from unbelief to belief. That you would bring about salvation and they would experience new life in you. I pray for those of us who are in Christ. I pray that we would be a people who would have this posture of repentance, turning from unbelief to belief. Enable us to to trust in you fully in all ways and all seasons of life. Thank you that you are good and you are trustworthy. We confess you corporately that you are our Lord and our God and we want to worship you well as a way of life. We pray this in your name. Amen. In an exchange with Martha, Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me even if... He dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha replies, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. May our response be to the Lord Jesus as a way of life. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whether that's salvation, whether that's a deepening, growing faith, may we walk by faith saying, yes, Lord as the people of God, as we leave this place. Amen.